Got 20 minutes? Then you have time for a Bible study. Jesus, name above all names, I worship you. Jesus, you're worthy to be praised. I worship you. Hi, everybody. I'm Jordan Pine. And I'm Andy Balog. Welcome to another episode of 20 Minute Bible Studies. Everyone knows the Great Commission. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. But did you know that was the second commission? Today we're going to examine the first commission. Let's listen now to the Word of God. A reading from the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus summoned his twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out to heal every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. These twelve Jesus sent out after instructing them, do not go in the way of the Gentiles, and do not enter any city of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and as you go, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons, freely you received, freely give. That was Matthew chapter 10, verse 1, and then verses 5 to 8. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. First, let's use the SPACE method. SPACE is an acronym that reminds us to consider the speaker, the letters SP, audience, the letter A, and context, the letter C, of a Bible reading before attempting an explanation, the letter E. When you put it together, we get the word space. Now, today we see that the speaker is God the Son, the Great Shepherd, and the audience is his 12 disciples who are listed in verses 2 through 4 of our text. Yeah, you have Peter and his brother Andrew, James and his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the other James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon, not Peter, also known as Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot. As for the context, it's right after Jesus had chosen his 12th disciple in chapter 9, Matthew the tax collector and the author of this gospel. A lot has already happened in the ministry of Jesus so far. A few points. John the Baptist has baptized Jesus passing the torch. Satan has tried to tempt Jesus during his 40-day fast. Jesus has delivered the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5-7. And Jesus has performed many miracles, healing the sick, cleansing lepers, and casting out demons. Now that we've considered the speaker, audience, and context, we're better equipped to give an explanation. And we start with the question, who did Jesus come to save? If you answer quickly, you'll say sinners, meaning the lost world, which is of course true in a general sense. But a better answer is this, Jesus came to save the lost sheep. In other words, those who were already members of his flock. Yeah, Jordan, I mean, I mean just to, to, to your point, it doesn't say the lost goats, which in typology, of those of you who study typology will know that in type, goats represent a lost man and sheep or lambs represent a saved man. So here we see that 
the Lord is saying, go out and preach this word, this gospel, to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Yeah, and you brought out a point um, when we were talking offline too, Andy, about what Jesus himself was preaching. What was he preaching? And we see that in Matthew 9.35, which comes right before our scripture reading. What does it say specifically in the Bible that Jesus was preaching? He was preaching the gospel of the kingdom. He was telling the, the people of Israel at the time, who we've many, many times spoke of this and taught of this, and we'll talk about it again later, that the Jews themselves were the people of God. So if they were faithful and obedient to God, then they would eventually be saved one day. So they were on track to receive salvation. So what Jesus was doing was he was preaching to these people who were going to synagogue, who were obeying the Mosaic law, telling them, I have good news. The good news that the Messiah is coming to set up his kingdom. That's the gospel that he was preaching to them at the time, which leads in context to our reading today in Matthew chapter 10. Yeah, so he came to save the lost sheep, in other words, the people who are already members of his flock. And we can see this in the stories of the the story of the Syrophoenician, you know, which is a big long word that basically just means not Jewish. Right. Woman from Matthew 15. You know, uh, Jesus had been going going around casting out demons, and this woman had a daughter who was cruelly demon-possessed, according to verse 22 of Matthew 15. And she begs Jesus to help her over and over and over again, but he ignores her at first. That's verse 23. So the disciples, eventually, they complain. They say, you know, she's, she's driving us nuts. You know, can you please intervene? And what does Jesus say in verse 24? This is very critical. He says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Yeah, you know, Jordan, and also a footnote to that, Jesus did end up healing her daughter using the situation to demonstrate salvation by faith. Right. Very important to to Yes, yeah, so he realize. was merciful, right? But that, that, that line is the one key line we wanted to bring out. And, you know, basically, bottom line, Jesus came to save Israel only, at least in the beginning, right? Yes, yes. It was obviously he is God and he had a plan, but according to the knowledge of the people of the day, initially he came to fulfill scripture and preach about the coming of the, of the kingdom which they didn't know at the time, but he was to be the king of Israel, the king of the Jews. Yeah, so um, he came to be their promised king and, and free them from the cruelties and indignities of Gentile rule, in this case, Roman rule, although the Jewish people had been under many um, uh, non-Jewish uh, cruel tyrants and stuff like that. And, you know, as you said, you know, God had a plan, and he knew in advance that his flock would reject its shepherd, and then a new flock would form. And, you know, even Jesus warned his disciples right after he gave them this first commission, he says, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in the synagogues. That's Matthew 10, 16, and 17. And of course, this prophecy was fulfilled many times over. What we want to focus on are the important lessons for us, the sheep of the new flock. And as we study what had happened to the original flock back then, we're going to take a closer look today. So I have a question, Jordan. My first one is this. Why didn't the lost sheep recognize their great shepherd? What happened to them? Well, a quick answer can be found in the prophetic words of Jeremiah, which uh, this is Jeremiah 50, verse 6. It says, My people have become lost sheep. Their shepherds have led them astray. They have made them turn aside on the mountains. They have gone along from mountain to hill and have forgotten their resting place. So two key phrases there is their shepherds and, of course, resting place. Let's talk about their shepherds have led them astray, Andy. Who were the shepherds of Jesus' day, and, and how had they done that? Well, great question. And before I answer that, I just want to remind everyone that Jesus is considered the great shepherd, right? not just a shepherd, okay? So some points. 
the shepherds were the scribes and Pharisees of the day back then. They were the ones that were sitting in the position for God, being an intermediary for them. And they were the ones that were supposed to be setting the examples, right? So scribes in ancient Israel were learned men. They were, they were obviously educated, whose business was to study the law, to transcribe it, and then write commentaries on it. And this is according to our friends over at gotquestions.org, great website. They were also hired on occasions when the need for a written document arose or when an interpretation of a legal point was needed. Yeah, the problem was that they went beyond the interpretation of Scripture, again, according to Got Questions, and added many man-made traditions to what God had said. They became professionals at spelling out the letter of the law while ignoring the spirit behind it. Things became so bad that the regulations and traditions the scribes added to the law were considered more important than the law itself. As for the Pharisees, you know, they were mostly middle-class businessmen and leaders of their synagogues. And, you know, although they were a minority in the Sanhedrin, which was the uh, ruling court body of, of the Jewish people, and held a minority number of positions, they seemed really to control what was happening in the San- Sanhedrin, particularly when it came to making decisions because they had the support of the people. They were the politically popular party, if you will. Yeah, Jordan, you know, the Pharisees who were referred to as rabbis taught that faithful Jews should observe all 600 plus laws found in the Torah. Jesus recounts some of their misdeeds in the eight woes of Matthew chapter 23. Let's turn there now and review a few of them while we also think about how these problems might still exist today, believe it or not. Yeah, okay, so Matthew 23, we'll, we'll look at the first um, or the setup here to the, to the woes. Uh, it says, the scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. As you were saying, they were acting as the intercessor that Moses' role had traditionally been in the beginning. Therefore, all that they tell you, do and observe, but do not do according to their deeds. For they say things and do not do them. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. But they do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries, and those were small cases that had little scriptures written in them that they wore on their body, and lengthen the tassels of their garments. They love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi or teacher by men. So what's the modern version of this, Andy? Well, I think at first glance, most Christians might look at this and say, hmm, you know, this kind of sounds like the Catholic Church, maybe the Roman Catholic Church, and, and what, you know, priests are asking their congregation to, to follow through with. You know, all the following the letter of the law, but like you said earlier, the spirit of it, the heart is not in it. They're just kind of going through the motions. But I think if you go a little bit further, you know, the one, the one verse that pops out to me there, Jordan, is that they tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders. It kind of reminds me of Arminian theology, Christianity today, versus, you know, Christians today that know you cannot lose your salvation, versus Christians that believe that if you don't, if you're not obedient, consistently obedient to God's word, that we might lose that salvation. And if you think about it, we all fail. There will never was and never will be a Christian who can go to the grave and say that I was good enough, even with the Holy Spirit sealed in us, even with, with the Word of God leading us, even by serving and having a ministry. Trust me, we all sin enough to the point where we should be damned to hell. But praise the Lord Jesus Christ for His grace. So when I read that verse today, I can't help but think that 
you know, Armenian theology teaches that, hey, you know, if, if, if we're not going to live perfectly and, and just do everything exactly to, to the Sermon on the Mount, there's a chance that we're not going to get raptured. And, and that's false. You know, again, it's, it's putting heavy burdens on people, on, on putting on their shoulders, and it's just too much responsibility. The problem with that is that you could be a new Christian going to church, years go by, five, ten years go by, and then something might happen in your life where you might, you might just fall away for a while. And then you think about it and say, you know, if you're taught that Armenian theology, you might say, wow, you know what? I'm lost. I'm going to hell. What's the point? I'm never going to get into to heaven now. And then what happens is you see a big drop off of Christians wanting to come back into the church. And that's what we don't want. Right. And I, I know you chose your denominational example because you came up in that church. And uh, I can tell you the same things. I, I didn't come up in that particular denomination, but the ones that I came up, the same thing. You see a lot of sins of hypocrisy. And that's basically what Jesus is saying. Anyone in a leadership role, I think, has the potential to fall into this sin. So we can all see our even ourselves in this. Anytime you're outwardly showing something that you're not inwardly doing, you know, like I wear a giant cross or whatever it is, I put a bumper sticker on my car, but meanwhile, if a guy cuts me off, I give him the finger. You know what I'm saying? Like we, we all fall into these traps, so we definitely shouldn't look at it judgmentally, but it is important to understand the sins and particularly the sins of leaders because God gives them a special responsibility and they have to be really careful. Agreed. Um, the first woe, really quickly, you know, he, Jesus says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. Again, he says hypocrites, talking about what we're talking about. He says something very interesting. You shut off the kingdom of heaven from people, for you do not enter into it yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. So not only do you not work for the kingdom, but you actually actively block other people who are about to or trying to go in or on the path to go in. That's pretty severe. I mean, you know, how do, how do modern church leaders do that, Andy? Well, that, that verse there stabs me right in the heart because, you know, me being part of a church and over the years looking for opportunities to share the kingdom truths to them, there were people that I actually had opportunity with that accepted. And then there was many at a high level that did not accept and then started spreading rumors in the church because they just, they wouldn't believe that they were wrong or maybe there was something they didn't see in scripture that, you know, Who's this guy that's coming here? And even though it's done with love and it's done with compassion and it's done with care, some people are just stubborn to the point where they just can't believe it. So I think what's happening here is with Jesus as well. He's coming to the people and he's around these scribes and Pharisees with love, showing miracles, showing compassion for the people, and yet they're mad or they're jealous. And and they're, you know, right now Jesus is rebuking them by saying, hey, look, if you would just accept me and allow me to do this for you and everyone else, the kingdom of heaven will come because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But yet you're rejecting me and you're preventing the people to come to me as well. Okay, the second woe, and then we're going to jump around because there's eight of these woes, and they're all worth looking at, by the way. But um, some of them uh, just jumped out at me more than others. Uh, this one is about um, devouring widows' houses, which, you know, we, we can talk about that. But the one that really jumped out was, and for a pretense, you make long prayers, therefore you will receive greater condemnation, Jesus says. That long prayers thing, uh, we've heard that before, right, Andy? Well, Jordan, we can compare it to Matthew chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount, when the Lord says, When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. 
Yeah, and that that recurs. And I think as kingdom seekers, we always have to remember that if you take any glory for anything you do supposedly for God, you've immediately received your reward. I, I think about that all the time. Absolutely. Don't mention it, you know, because sin's always creeping in there. Always some little subtle way. You're going to try to get an attaboy or a, oh, yeah, look at you, you're great. And as soon as you do that, you, you kill your kingdom reward. So in this particular case, he's talking about people who pray, not because they want to speak to God, or they're not even, not even probably connecting with God or thinking of God. They're thinking about how everyone's going to look at them and go, oh, this guy is so religious. You know, and we definitely see that kind of personality that was existing back then today in the church, unfortunately. No, good points, Jordan. So... Let's skip the, the third woe. And again, we recommend when you get a chance, when you go home, whenever you get an opportunity, study these woes in the book of Matthew. We're going to go to the fourth woe, and we're going to pick it up in verse 16. I'll read that. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, whoever swears by the temple, that is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple is obligated. You fools and blind men, which is more important, the gold or the temple that sanctified the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, that is nothing. But whoever swears by the offering on it, he is obligated. You blind men, which is more important, the offering or the altar that sanctifies the offering? Therefore, whoever swears by the altar, swears both by the altar and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple, swears both by the temple and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven, swears both by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. Okay, Jordan, what is Jesus talking about here? What is the modern-day takeaway for us? Well, I think in a more general sense, I mean, we can get into the specifics of what was going on at that time. But again, remember, these are very legalistic um, leaders. They had gotten down to, you know, again, to the place where there were 600-plus laws, and that was more important than the actual law that God gave. And Jesus is kind of like taking their nitpicking, little picayune rules and regulations, which, of course, we see in all denominations today. Why do we have so many denominations? Because some group of people are like, well, this particular regulation is super important, and this one is not, and we're going to break off, and we're going to be all about this particular regulation. And Jesus was constantly bringing them back to the spirit of the law, right? That, that, this, um, that, that these particular, like, well, if we swear by this, but not by that, it's a lesser kind of, he's like, no. Let, you know, let your yes be yes, your no be no. If you swear, you're swearing by everything that's in God's house. Exactly. And, and you know, just for an example, right? So I want to create a visual here. When we were children, we loved our parents. But when they brought us gifts, we loved them even more. So if you could go back to, let's say, your seventh birthday, and you know that your parents or your mom or your dad purchased a gift for you, and you were thankful for that gift because of what the gift was. It wasn't so much that your parents gave it to you. But now that we're older and mature which is what Jesus is looking from us, to be mature spiritually and understand it's not the gift, but it's the point that somebody loves you enough to give you that gift. Right. So I think what Jesus is trying to say to us today is remember, it's what's behind it. It's the motive. It's the love in the heart that God wants us to have for him. Not necessarily what's connected to, it, to God, the altar and the gifts of the altar and, and the sacrifices, but it's the point that it's our way of communicating with God and getting closer to the Lord. And then moving on, Jordan, we're going to go to, we're going to skip the fifth woe, and we're going to go right into the sixth woe. And I'll read that, picking up in verse 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, 
First, clean the inside of the cup and of the dish so that the outside of it may be clean also. Discuss the metaphors here, Jordan, please, of the cup and the dish. Well, I mean, it's a very physical metaphor because you can just imagine like taking a very clean looking teacup, for example, and then you just go and pour liquid into it. You don't even look inside and it's horrible and dirty. Like that's what's going into your body. I think it's it's a great, uh, very visual metaphor that Jesus is using here. But it's along the same lines of of hypocrisy. You know, it's the broad phylacteries, it's the the long tassels, it's the it's the it's the beauty on the outside looking like a very religious and um, you know he uses another example of a, a whitewashed tomb. You know, it looks beautiful on the outside. It's a tomb on the inside. It, these are all metaphors and analogies for how we can be uh, fake to the whole world and look self righteous, but inside, you know, God sees the heart and knows that we're rotten and corrupt and dirty, you know? Yeah, I agree. And unfortunately, I guess you could say the the feeling here is that Jesus is telling them, who cares what people think of you on the outside? Right. It's what's inside that counts. It's God is the one who sees your heart. God is the one who's going to judge you based on your actions, your mindset, your heart. It's who cares what people say, you know, how you look, how you speak, what you're wearing, so on and so forth, right? Because if the outside of the cup is clean, you know, that's wonderful. But if the inside isn't, then what's the point? So great points, Jordan. And we do have to kind of, you know, again, this is about the leaders, right? This is about the Pharisees and the scribes who would be the, the modern equivalent would be like pastors or televangelists, let's just say. And I think a lot of people fall into the same traps because they look at the outside, you know, the guy's in a nice suit and he has a fancy car or whatever it is, beautiful big church. And, um, and as parishioners, we can fall into this trap of valuing that, not recognizing that just like back then, maybe we're being led astray by someone who's not so clean and so pretty on the inside. And I think Jesus goes right to the heart of that matter here with his first commission. I would have to agree with you, Jordan. And you know, you, you mentioned the word televangelists. And I'd have to say, me personally, coming from a family who's breaking out of Catholicism in old ways into the new, that when they do happen to catch a televangelist and they see someone humbly dressed, a pair of jeans, maybe a t-shirt even, you know, a sweater vest, whatever it might be, they, I, I notice that they tend to be more connected to that person. Whereas if there's somebody that, that's got the, you know, three-piece, $5,000 suit, you know, most of us don't have that kind of money, right? So automatically we're thinking, well, he affords that, he justifies that, because he says, well, look what God can do for me, look, he's going to do that for you as well. And, you know, a lot of times they justify that by saying, we have to glorify God and show what God can do, and I'm rich because I serve God, and you could be rich too, and whatever it might be. But I think that being humble is probably a more impactful way to penetrate the heart of a man, to get them, again, according to our, our first point here in the lesson is, the Great Commission, getting people to, to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. I think going in a humble way, going with love, is probably the best way to really make an impact. That's really what we wanted you to see today. The church today is like Israel back then, and many in the church today are like the lost sheep that Jesus found when he came, led astray by their shepherds. Just as that flock wasn't prepared for the first coming of the Great Shepherd, we need to ask, is the flock today prepared for his second coming? That's the question we need to grapple with individually and also as a church, because today the kingdom of heaven is once again at hand. It won't be long now before our Lord returns and institutes his earthly kingdom. Yes, Jordan, and as Jesus says elsewhere in Matthew, 
Be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. You must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. And that's the message, the mission, and the caution. And that is our lesson. Thanks for joining us for another 20-minute Bible study. Special thanks to the family of Pastor Gary T. Whipple and to the Abundant Life Worship Center for the music for our show. I'm Steve Zioli. Until next time, may the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Mysteries of the Kingdom Incorporated.